0: Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 for our time of study in the Word this morning. Uh, How many of you got up early and uh, maybe you didn't have to get up early? How many of you have opened gifts as a family already? Wow. Okay. In the first service, there were very few. (laughs) Raise your hand if you have not opened gifts yet. Okay. All right. Those of you that haven't, I am sure you are hoping for a short <laughs> sermon. Every Christmas our family we read the Christmas narrative in Luke 2 and the kids are like anxious to get through it. To get to the gifts, so I read it extra slow. Um, <laughs> So, but I won't do that to you. Uh, Matthew 2, if you want to give a title to what we're going to be uh, talking about this morning, it would be Looking for the Perfect King. We're going to encounter some men who are looking for the Christ, the Perfect King, and we're going to learn some things from them on their journey. Basically, there's four, in, in the Gospel accounts, there's four passages that kind of compose the Christmas narrative. And what we do here at Cornerstone is every Christmas service, um, we'll pick one of those four and we'll cycle through them every four years. And it's always a blessing for me to reapproach those same passages and study them afresh and find what God has for us. They are inexhaustible and deep, and there's always much to feed us in those passages that we have read again and again. Uh, Let me let me begin with this. Timothy uh, Keller and his wife, Kathy, wrote a book, The Meaning of Marriage, um, that just came out a few months ago. And in this book, they tell the story about a czar of Russia and a one of his generals that was dying and the son of that dying general. Let me read the story to you. They say it is said that one of the old czars of Russia had a trusted general who was dying of his wounds. When the soldier was on his deathbed, the czar promised to raise the soldier's young son and provide for him. After his death, the czar made good on his word. He gave the young boy the best of places to live and the best of education. He was given a commission and entered the army. However, the young man had an addiction to gambling. Because he couldn't cover his gambling debts, he began to embezzle from his regiment's funds. One night he was sitting in the tent looking at the books and he realized that his embezzlement was about to be discovered. He could hide it no longer from the accountants. He sat drinking heavily as he prepared to kill himself. He had the revolver by his side, and he took a few more drinks to strengthen his resolve for the suicide. But the drink was too potent, and he passed out while on the table. That night, the czar was doing what he often did, disguised as a simple soldier. He was walking through the camp and the ranks, trying to assess the morale of his army, hearing what he could hear. He walked into his foster son's tent and saw him slumped over the book. He, the czar, read the book and realized what the young man had done and what he was about to do. When the young man awoke hours later, to his surprise, the revolver was gone. Then he saw a letter by his hand. To his shock, it was a promissory note saying, I, the czar, will pay the full amount from my own personal funds to make up the difference found in this book. And it was sealed with the czar's personal seal. The czar had seen the young man's sin clearly, the full dimension of what he had done, but he had covered and paid for the sin personally. When I read that story The first thought that came to my mind is, I have a king just like that. Those of us that know Jesus, we have a king who has done all of this and even more. This is Jesus, the perfect king. We learn in Scripture that Jesus is indeed a king with all authority in heaven and on earth. We learn in Scripture that he came into this world to be with us where we are, that He assessed our need, that He saw our sin, that He saw the full scope and all the dimensions, the full magnitude of our sin, and He paid the price in full for our sins through His death on the cross, and He sealed it with His own blood. This is our King, King Jesus. And if you are looking for someone to rule over your life, he is the perfect king to rule your life. Amen. You might say, well, I don't, I don't want anyone ruling me. The truth is, everyone is ruled by something. Everybody. As one writer says, while every person will not be ruled the same way, everyone is ruled by something. You have a king. Every one of us in this room Every person on the planet has something that is functioning as a king, exerting a reigning, ruling influence over his or her life. You may be ruled by your desire for comfort, by your desire for peace, by your desire for pleasure, by your desire for prestige. Uh, You may be ruled by another person or by a relationship Or a thing, but everybody is ruled by something or someone. And if you're going to be ruled by something, be ruled by Jesus. Seek Him. Seek out the perfect King to be your King. We spend a lot of time in the Christmas season looking for things, right? Looking for that perfect gift to give to somebody else, let us spend this day, the the next few moments, looking for the perfect king, who is a wonderful gift himself to us. We're going to learn from Matthew 2, 1 through 12 this morning, because one of the themes of these verses is that of searching. In verse 2, the question is asked, where is he who is born king? King. Jesus is being searched for and the question is being asked. We have expressions like inquired where the Christ in verse four search carefully. Verse eight and found in verse eight. And ultimately, it's the Magi that are searching for Jesus, the perfect king in these verses. And what we're going to do with the time that we have is we're going to just make Six observations. We're going to enjoy the narrative as it unfolds. And all the while, we'll make six observations regarding the Magi's search for Christ, who is their perfect king and our perfect king as well. Before we do that, though, let me just give you a few quick facts about the Magi who are doing the searching. Um, the word that is found in the text is magi, which is the plural of magus, not maggot, magus, which speaks of a singular magician. Uh, magi is plural, uh, It speaks of magicians, uh, and this is not meaning magicians in the David Copperfield sense of the, of the term, uh, it basically speaks of wise men and not just wise men, but the wisest of men, men who were very skilled and very well educated, knowledgeable in the sciences, in the arts and in history and in mathematics. And uh, of all the people in a society, they were the wisest of the wise These men in Babylon and in Persia, we learn here that they're from the east, which means they were either from Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, or Persia, which is modern-day Iran. They're from either of these two regions, and we know a lot about them from history, like from the book of Daniel, as well as other sources in history. A few things about the Magi in either of these cultures is that These men were not only well-educated and skilled, but they were the tutors of kings. When a a young man was destined to be king, uh, they needed to find tutors who would shape the mind of this young person as he grows intellectually and spiritually. And who were the tutors? It was the Magi who shaped the thinking and the mindset of the future king. Also, at least in Persia... No one could become king without the approval of the Magi. So that's enormous power. They were the ones who determined who would become king and who could not. In both Babylon and Persia, when someone did become king, they basically essentially had a cabinet of advisors who were the Magi. And in some senses, the advisors to a king possess more power than the king himself. Charles Coulson, back before he came to know Christ, he was one of the advisors to President Nixon. He said for years he had a lust for power that was so strong that he said, I didn't want to be president. That wasn't powerful enough. I wanted to be an advisor to the president because the one who had the president's ear, that's the one with the real true power. And the Magi were the ones who possessed this kind of power as advisors to the king's. We also know regarding these Magi that they knew something of the coming king of Israel. And I think there's solid speculation as to how they would have known about that. Uh, We know from Daniel chapter two that Daniel in the Old Testament was one of the Magi in Babylon. In fact, he was the chief of the Magi, literally. So he was the top uh, Magus, okay? to use the singular. Uh, So he. Uh, no doubt, though it was hundreds of years earlier, uh, was legendary. He was an epic figure in both Persia and Babylonian lore. And I have no doubt that these Magi read the book of Daniel, as well as other passages and books that were in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament. And so they were knowledgeable about the fact that there is a Messiah that is coming To Israel and we see the extent of their knowledge because in verses one and two, they're coming into Jerusalem and they know that there is a Messiah coming. He has been born and get this, they're there to worship him, which means they know somehow, some way this baby is divine. That's an amazing level of knowledge that they possess at this point. So they no doubt understood uh, enough of the Old Testament scriptures to have the volume of knowledge that would uh, that would be represented in these verses here in Matthew chapter two and the first couple verses here. Anyway, they're going to go on a journey looking for Christ, the perfect king. And let's just watch them as they do so. Six observations. Observation number one about their quest for Christ is that they traveled a great distance to find Christ. These men. This is no casual journey. They travel a tremendous distance to find this Christ, the perfect King. It says in verse one, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the King, Magi from the East arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the East and have come to worship Uh, him Uh, think about this guys if if they're coming from Babylon which is actually closer than if they were coming from Persia let's assume they're coming from Babylon Um, that's basically 900 miles of a journey from Babylon to Jerusalem and if everything went splendidly that's a four-month journey and we know that because in Ezra chapter 7 Ezra made a journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, and it says that the good hand of God was with him. So God prospered his journey and he made it in four months. So if everything is going really, really well, they would make this journey in four months. So the Magi, they they see a star. It says we have seen his star in the east. So when we were in the east, hundreds of miles away, we saw his star and we were able to infer from that that the Messiah has been born. It probably took them a little while to gather their um, their affairs, to uh, polish up their affairs, to be ready to go, to announce to their wives that we're going to go on a four-month journey uh, because we've seen a star. And that means the Messiah has been born. And think about it. They're going to go four months at least in one direction and then four months coming back so this is at minimum of an 8 month journey uh, imagine the conviction of these men they see a star in the heavens and they connect that to the messiah and they're absolutely convinced this means that the messiah of israel has been born and we want to see him and we are now going to be gone from our dwelling place and from our comfort zone And from the society and the family that we're accustomed to, we're going to be gone for the next eight months because we want to see him and worship him. Imagine something being so valuable to you that you are willing to leave everything for eight months. So that you can go four months in one direction to see something and then four months coming back. Well, they say we've seen a star in the east. We're not sure what the star was. There are some who speculate that the star was an alignment of the planets of some sort. I don't think that's likely because whatever the star is, we'll see a few verses into this narrative that it it had the ability to move ahead of them and then stop over the house where Christ and Mary were. So it's at the very least some kind of supernatural light, the glory of God that's in the heavens that they saw when they were in Babylon or Persia, and they were able to put two and two together and conclude that what that meant is the Messiah has been born. Perhaps they were familiar with Numbers 24, 17, where it says, I see him, but not now I behold him, but not near a star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. One from Jacob shall have dominion, royal, kingly dominion. Now, this verse is not saying that there will be a star in the heavens, but that the Messiah himself will be the star of Jacob that will rise. But somehow the Magi see a star in the heavens and they put that together with the Messiah and conclude that the Messiah has been born. Perhaps they read Daniel 9 where it's actually prophesied down to the very year that after the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, that the Messiah would enter into the gates of Jerusalem down to the very year. And so they're kind of putting all of that together, perhaps, and concluding that somewhere around this time, based on Daniel 9, the Messiah is going to be born. And then they see this light in the heavens, this luminary body in the heavens, And they come to the conclusion he has been born and we got to leave and we need to go and we need to find him so that we can worship him. They travel a great distance to find Christ. How far are you willing to travel to find him? A second observation that we make as we watch them on this journey is that they were persistent, bold and public in their efforts to find Christ. They were persistent. They were bold and they were public in their efforts to find Christ. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying... Now, that doesn't seem like that word saying is saying a whole lot. But in the Greek text, this is a present tense verb, which means that they were perpetually saying... They were continuously saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's not just a question they asked one time. Think about it. If they got to Jerusalem and asked the question one time and someone gave them an answer and said, well, he's in Bethlehem, they would have never needed to ask the question again. They would have gone straight to Bethlehem. But that's not what happened. They come into Jerusalem and they're asking, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And. A guy saying, I don't know, go ask her. And so they go over and ask her, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We assume you guys would know. We we know he's been born and we're 900 miles away at least. And we're expecting the whole city of Jerusalem to be abuzz with the news of this fact. But this guy we just talked to doesn't know anything about it. Do you know where he is? And she would say, no, I don't know. Go ask so and so. And so they're going from person to person to person asking where is he who has been born king of the Jews, and they keep on asking because they're not getting an answer, but they persist, and they are not discouraged. They're not like some guys who don't like searching for things. I would be among them. That There have been times in my married life Where I say to my wife, where is such and such? And she points to a drawer, says it's in that drawer. And I would go to the drawer, pull it out. And if it's not sitting on the top of everything else and I don't see it immediately, I would tell her it's not in the drawer. She would then walk over to the drawer and lift something up and behold, it's there. Progressing further into my marriage, I got tired of being humiliated. So if she would say it's in the drawer, I would search very thoroughly. And I'm tempted to ask her and tell her it's not in here. But I'm like, I can't do that because she's going to find it in here. It's crazy. And so I'm searching as thoroughly as I can. And there have been times where I've said it's not in the, the drawer. And she's like, you didn't check hard enough. And I'm like, I did. It's not in there. And she's walked over to the drawer and she performs this magic, and there it is. <laughs> but I don't like looking for things, and it's easy to be discouraged after an attempt or two. But imagine what would have happened if the Magi asked a few people and said, Well, I guess no one knows. Let's go back. They didn't do that. They kept asking. They were persistent. How persistent are we in seeking To find Jesus. They were all so bold. Look at the faith of these men. And they're announcing this to everyone. Where is he who's been born? King of the Jews. We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. They're like, these are men of faith. We saw a light in the heavens and we know what that means. It means he's been born and we've traveled all this distance. And I'm sure that they're explaining that to people and they're like, the Messiah has been born. How do you know that? Well, we saw a light in the heavens. And so we know he's been born These men are bold in their faith, and they're also bold in announcing what their intentions are. They're going public. We've come here to worship him, which is, I'm sure, utterly amazing to the people they were speaking to. We have traveled all this distance because we're looking for an infant or, at the oldest, a toddler, so that we we can find him and bow low before him and worship him as God. I think some of us, if that was our intention, we would have kind of kept that to ourselves so as not to stir up any trouble or strange expressions from those that we're speaking to. But they're like, we're here. We're here to worship. Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when we were in the east and we have come to worship him. They travel a great distance to find Christ, they're persistent, bold and public in their efforts to find him. We know in scripture in Hebrews 11:6, God says that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, and he rewarded the Magi because they didn't just seek him, but they sought him diligently and they did so boldly without shame. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, "Whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulteress And sinful generation, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is saying, if you're ashamed to be associated with me right now, I will be ashamed to be associated with you when I return. But he will not be ashamed of the Magi, for they were not ashamed of their intentions. They were not ashamed to be associated with him There's a third observation we make about the Magi, and that is, sure enough, they stirred up trouble in their quest to find Christ. They stirred up trouble in their quest to find Christ. If you seek Christ diligently, the likelihood is you're going to stir up trouble. You don't have to want to do that. Uh, And some people stir up trouble needlessly. Uh, But if you follow Christ, you're going to stir up trouble along the way. You're going to unsettle people around you and they actually do that. They stir up trouble in their quest to find Christ. It says in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now, guys, when Herod is troubled, that's really bad news. We know from history that Herod was an extremely paranoid king. Uh, he lived in three places, Jerusalem, Caesarea, and Masada. And Masada, he had three impregnable walls uh, that protected uh, him. And when he was there, he felt safe, but then he grew suspicious of what's going on down in Jerusalem. And so I got to go there to find out what's going on. And then he's down in Jerusalem, what's going on in Caesarea? And so he'd go there and he's always suspicious about what's going on wherever he is not. He was always paranoid about his power and afraid of anyone that might try to snatch his power away from him. We know from history that he was married and uh, he grew suspicious of his wife's brother. So he killed him. And at some point after that, he grew suspicious of his wife's mother. And so he killed her. And we know from history that 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 hurt the marriage, Um, as you might imagine, killing his wife's brother and then mother. And it wasn't too long after that, that he just killed his wife because he grew suspicious of her. History also tells us that Herod had three sons. He had two of his sons killed, two of the three killed because he grew suspicious of their intentions And then Herod was in his 70s five days before he died. And he grew suspicious of his third son and had him killed. It's safe to say this guy is paranoid about holding on to his power and his control. The last, and here come the Magi into Jerusalem, they're asking the worst question anyone can ask. They're naive about this. They probably don't know much about Herod. They're just coming in saying, where is he who's been born? King of the Jews. We have come to worship him. Well, Herod catches wind of this. By the way, we don't know how many Magi there were. Ancient church tradition says there were 12. Later tradition says there were three. We don't know the the number. We do know that these men were wealthy. These men were very powerful. And they no doubt brought many servants and attendants with them and soldiers very likely with them. So this is a, in all likelihood, a massive crowd of people coming into Jerusalem asking around for this king, this one who has been born king of the Jews. And so it says when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. And as you might expect, all Jerusalem was troubled. When Herod was troubled, everyone was troubled And so look what he does, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So he doesn't tell them what his intentions are. He's just gathers these scholars together in the Old Testament scriptures and just says, you know, guys, I've been having my devotions and I've been thinking about the Messiah. And I'm just wondering, you know, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they give him an answer and they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And then they quote from Micah chapter five, verse two, where it says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so they're like, Herod, that's a good question. Actually, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 provides an answer to this question. He, The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, Herod then dismisses them out of his presence, and he then calls the Magi into his presence. It says in verse 7, then Herod secretly called the Magi, and he determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So he's asking them, you know, when when did this star appear? And they're like, well, you know, it was seven new moons ago. Seven new moons? Was it exactly seven new moons? Well, actually it was three days before seven new moons ago. Okay. What time of you know what time of night was it? I mean, he's wanting to know down to the smallest detail the exact time when the star appeared. He wants to know the exact age of this star. Child, Now, here's what's amazing to me. Herod, in verse 7, is demonstrating faith in the miraculous. He's not questioning whether a star actually appeared announcing the birth of the Messiah. He's assuming that happened. That's what's amazing. Yes, there was some luminary body in the heavens. Some light was in the heavens announcing the birth of the Messiah, the King of Israel. I believe that. I believe that miraculous event took place. I want to find out exactly when it happened so that I can then make sure I kill him. And that's exactly what he does uh, as you continue reading in verse 13 and beyond. Guys, we often think, man, God, if you could just do a miracle and people see the miraculous, they would automatically believe. That's not true. The Roman soldiers at the tomb of Christ, they saw an angel come and roll the stone away. They saw that the tomb was empty. They didn't believe. They were paid off to spread lies that his body was stolen. Herod is fully believing in the miraculous. And he does not worship Christ. He wants to kill him. And so he determined from them, he's like, can you give me some information? When did the star up here. And then once they gave him that information, he said, well, I've got some information for you. Uh, verse eight, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, no doubt he shared Micah five two with them. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Go to Bethlehem. That's where you will be able to find the this child. And he said to them, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, come back and tell me so that I, too, may come. And worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way. And there's every indication that they were naive about this. And they're like, man, this guy's a great guy. He's telling us where to go to find him. And you know what? Yes, Herod, we'll go find him and then we'll come back and we'll tell you right away so you can join us in worshiping him. As you continue reading, you'll see that an angel essentially in a dream has to tell them. God has to tell them in a dream not to go back to Herod, They trusted him. But nonetheless, with this information, they began going to Bethlehem. And let me just throw this point in based on that. And that is that the Magi received help from Scripture in their quest to find Christ. They got to Jerusalem. But in terms of getting from Jerusalem to the place where the Messiah is, they needed help from Scripture in knowing where to go. God uses Herod. With all of his devious intent to gather that information, to pass that along to them. But basically, they're heading now down to Bethlehem because that's where the Scripture is essentially pointing them. And if we are interested in seeking Christ and finding him, we will find him if we follow the Scripture as they did. There are scholars today that are looking for the real historical Jesus. And they look at the gospel accounts and say, we can't trust this. No, no, no. And they set that aside. They say, we're looking for the real historical Jesus. And they're looking for this Jesus apart from and in contradiction to the scripture. The Magi didn't do that. They're looking for the Christ of scripture and they find him because that the Christ of scripture is the real historical Jesus. So if you want to find God, if you want to find Christ, go to the Bible, begin reading the Bible and the Bible. The scriptures will point you to him as the scriptures pointed the Magi to him. Two thousand years ago, look at what it says, beginning in verse nine, after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. What this indicates is that the Magi would have seen the star when they were in Babylon or Persia. The star would have disappeared. They didn't follow the star all the way to Jerusalem, it disappeared. They head to Jerusalem because the Messiah is the king of the Jews, but they're not seeing the star on their journey. They get to Jerusalem. They don't know where to go next. So they're asking around. And now Herod's saying, according to Micah 5, 2, you'll find him in Bethlehem. Go find him and then come back and tell me so I can join you in worshiping him. They then began heading from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. And then the star reappears. Which leads us to a fifth observation about the Magi and their quest to find Christ. And that is, they rejoiced greatly in the star which led them to Christ. It says, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with mega joy. Now, think about their joy here. Why are they so ecstatic and joyful upon seeing the star? Is it because they like stars? Are they like, man, we just love stars. Look at that star. That makes me so happy. No, we know the answer to that question, right? They are rejoicing with mega joy in that star for no other reason than that that star is going to direct them to Christ. If you value Christ, you will rejoice in anything and anyone that truly points you to him. You can learn something about the value that the Magi placed upon Christ by their level of joy in this entity that they knew would point them and take them to Jesus. As Christians, we know that all creation, nature, as some call it, points us to Jesus. He created it. It's a revelation of his imagination, of his power and glory. So we rejoice in creation. In what we call nature, the scriptures point us to Jesus, so we ought to rejoice exceedingly with great joy whenever we open up this book and we get to hear from God as God is pointing us to his son, Jesus Christ, and directing us to him and showing us what he is like. There's a sixth and final observation we can make. About the Magi's quest to find Jesus. And that is when they finally did find him, they worshipped him. When they finally found Christ, they worshipped him. Imagine you being them four months at least of a journey. And you get to Jerusalem. No one knows anything. You start getting discouraged. Then you're meeting with the king, Herod. He directs you down to Bethlehem. And now the star reappears and you know Okay, this is going to be really, this is really imminent here. And then the star comes and stops over the house where the child is. And you know that this one born king of the Jews is inside that house. Look what happens. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Now, Jesus was at least probably four and a half months. That would be the youngest he could be at this point, because that's how long the journey would have been. At least four and a half months to probably a year and a half. Uh, Herod said all kids two and under are going to be killed in Bethlehem. And he was probably throwing in some padding just to be on the safe side. So Jesus is uh, perhaps a few months old. Several months old or, or perhaps even a toddler at this point. Just toddling around. But they come into the house and they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Now notice what it says next. And they fell to the ground and worshipped whom? Him. Him. They, and they saw the child and they worshipped him. Their people... Today, sincere in their motives, who worship Jesus and Mary, the Magi are now confronted with Jesus and Mary, and they fall to the ground and worship Him and Him only. And you know what? In falling to the ground and worshiping Him, they were honoring Mary because she worshiped Him. They were joining her in the worship of, of this one who has been born the king of the Jews. If you cherish the legacy of Mary, you value her and wish to honor her, join her in her worship of the Son of God. They came into the house and saw Mary and the child. We don't know where Joseph was at this moment, but they see the two of them and they fall to the ground and worshiped him. Notice this. They fall to the ground. They didn't just kind of bow a little bit, um, nod their head in respect or even kind of take a knee. No, they fell to the ground. This is the kind of bowing where you would basically collapse to the ground and you press your body and your face to the ground as hard as you can, getting as low as you possibly can before this one that you are worshiping. And this posture is basically saying, I am at your mercy. I'm at your mercy. Do unto me as you please. I am also at your service. Whatever you wish for us to do, your wish is our command. We are your servants. Someone bowing in this way before someone that they're worshiping is saying, I am yours. Do whatever you please with me. This is an act, not just of respect, but of utter surrender. And so we're not surprised to read. It says, then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold. And then it's normally pronounced frankincense, but let's pronounce it this way. Frank incense and myrrh. Um, frankincense. It's incense that was very frank. That's the idea. A person who's frank is what? Someone, they just come into a room and whatever they're thinking, it just is going to fill the whole room. This frankincense was an incense that literally was very frank. Uh, you couldn't hide it. You couldn't sneak frankincense into a room and no one know about it. It was loud. It was a very potent, beautiful aroma that would fill the whole room. It was a very frank incense, very valuable. So they give gold frankincense and also another... Fragrant smelling ointment myrrh, these all three are of immense value and they they're basically through their posture offering themselves to this one born king of the Jews saying do unto us as you please your wish is our command. How can we serve and then also giving of what is valuable to them and offering it to him. They we don't know how long they stayed. They stayed at least long enough to go to sleep. And have a dream. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And if you're interested in what Herod thought of them leaving in this way without reporting back to him, continue reading in verse 13 and following. Well, on this Christmas day, we do well to be seekers of Jesus. And to be seekers of him every day of the year. And there's much that we can learn from the example of the Magi. Don't look at these descriptions and go, well, I'm impressed with them. No, be impressed with the one who would inspire this kind of seeking. That's what we're talking about. Do you see what the Magi saw in this one Jesus whom they sought so diligently, boldly, publicly, passionately? And when they found Him, they worshipped Him. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. You know, the essence of salvation is doing basically what the Magi did. They got to Jesus and they bowed before Him saying, I'm at your mercy, I'm at your service, I am yours, do whatever you please with me. I would ask you, have you come to a point in your life where you have bowed before Jesus and said, I'm yours, do with me as you please? By the way, if you say to Jesus, do with me as you please, you know what Jesus pleases to do with you? Forgive your sins. Make you God's child. Give you the Holy Spirit. And to have a friendship and a relationship with you. Have you ever bowed before Him in this way? In all brokenness and humility. And said, Jesus, your wish... For my salvation, do unto me as you please. Save me as you please. I surrender to your saving, loving purposes. If you're here today and you've never put your trust in Christ for salvation and cried out to Him, you can do that right now where you're seated. If you want to talk further, please come up, talk to me afterwards. I would love to pray with you and encourage you as you seek Christ and as He seeks you. Let us help you in any way that we can. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Jesus, for coming into this world, Jesus, and living amongst us and seeing our need and dying the death that we deserve to die so that we could have a salvation we would have never attained on our own. What love is this? May we seek You first and foremost above all. May we bow before You as we see Your loving, saving heart towards broken sinners. May we bow low before You and say, Jesus, do with me as You please. Forgive me as You please. Grace me as You please. Love me as You please. I need You and I need Your salvation. I don't want to be ruled over by anything or anyone else. My idols are cruel idols that destroy me. I want to be ruled by a loving sovereign like You. May we join the Magi in this posture each day before Jesus. Lord, we thank You for the opportunity to give of our offerings to You in the next moment or two. Receive these funds and do much with them for the glory of Jesus. We give ourselves to You in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.